Yeah, uh, Book of Galatians, six short chapters, but they are absolutely packed full. Uh, if you're familiar with the Book of Romans um, and the arguments that are put in there, uh, a lot of people have called Galatians like Romans Jr. Um, because it is much smaller, but it's very compact, uh, teaching essentially the same thing. We cannot save ourselves through works of the law. There's nothing that we could do that's good enough to earn righteousness. There's nothing that's uh, doable by fallen humanity to increase his status before God. And so that very important concept of justification sits in the background of Paul's entire argument about the Spirit of God. There's only one who brings life, and it's not you. There's, there's only one who can bring about this life. It's not us. It's not uh, works of the law. It's not circumcision. It's not being part of the right ethnicity. None of these things bring life. There's one life giver, and that's the Spirit of God. And so what Paul will do is, after the Council of Jerusalem, he writes to these Gentile believers who are being taught another gospel by these Judaizers, he calls them, uh, those who want to turn Gentiles into Jews in order to follow Messiah and to try to preserve uh, Jewishness of the gospel uh, while dismantling the reality that the Spirit of God has gone out to the Gentiles in the exact same way as he came to the Jews, making no distinction. And so this is the letter that Paul writes in response to all of that. Um, obviously, the first two chapters, they actually mention nothing about the Spirit of God, chapters 1 and 2, because there he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the reality that Abraham was justified through faith, that we are justified the exact same way. So were the Jews, so was anyone else who's ever been justified. Uh, that there was, there was a nature to the crucifixion of Christ, um, and it finishes off with that, with that wonderful uh, memory verse that you probably learned in Sunday school, um, that uh, at, at 2.20, uh, Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, notice the focus on life, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's the end of his gospel presentation. There's a reason why Christ died, that death through the Spirit brought life. If, if we are able to present ourselves faultless before God, then there's no reason for the cross. You see that? That's just basically what he says to cap it off. And now he goes into a whole diatribe about the Spirit of God and its connection to the life of the believer, right? So this is where we pick up Galatians chapter 3. As you notice, 1 and 2 here in the introduction are all about the gospel and clarifying the gospel and everything. Now in chapter 3, he starts into this defense of the experience of the gospel in their lives. And so he takes a very... Um, a different tone than anything else you'll read in Scripture. Uh, Paul, in the book of Galatians, is at his, uh, the height of his sarcasm. Uh, he is very insulting, and he has the strongest of language here. Uh, when you, there's actually not stronger language anywhere in the New Testament. Um, the very first opening phrase, O foolish Galatians, uh, that's a very tepid way of translating that, you morons, is more of an accurate way of exp uh, expressing that. Um, you stupid Galatians. Th this, this, this is at the base. You haven't even analyzed this. You haven't even thought this through, and you're just taking someone else's teaching, and it's changing the gospel. Right? You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Basically, who has cast a spell on you to think that this is okay? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing good works of the law or by hearing the Word of God with faith? How did the Spirit first come to you? He introduces them to their own conversion. He doesn't even have to go to Cornelius or anything else. He says, look at your own life. Did you earn your status as a Christian? Did you, did you, through works of the law, present yourself before the throne of grace faultless? Or did you hear about Christ and believe on him? It's not a hard question. Verse 3, again, are you so stupid? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is 
the capstone title of this whole section. What began by the Spirit at conversion continues by the Spirit in the Christian's life. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. If, if life came to us through faith and the Spirit of God, then life will continue to come to us on that basis. Imagine, if you will, if the Christian life began by faith, we're saved by faith, right? And I hear this taught in churches all the time. Like, whoa, we, we trust on Jesus for our salvation. Now get to work, Christian, and do all this good stuff. That's missing the whole point. In fact, as, as Paul will go on to say, if you look at the Christian life like that, you are emasculating the concept of the gospel itself. It is God alone who brings new life and the fruit of the Spirit. And notice the fruit of the Spirit, capital S. It is not the fruit of trying really hard to love, joy, peace, patience. Kind. It's not trying really hard. It is the Spirit of God who brings this into our lives and transforms us from the inside. This is not a life that we can live up to. When we hear of the gentleness that is in the gospel, that's not something we dig down into ourselves and find and pull out of our soul. That's something that we depend upon God to bring about into our lives. As we look at Christ, as we trust in him, as we continually remind ourselves of this with other Christians, interact with the word of God and believe what we hear, that changes us. We in the modern society, we don't like to think like that. We like to go, tell me what I need to do, and I'm going to do it. And Paul says, that's not how it works. The life that we now live, we live by faith. It's not just that we are saved by faith, we live by faith. It's everything that we do. Once you began in the Spirit, he says in verse 3, that, that begun work of the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, do you really think you can add to the work of God? The righteousness of Christ that's been given to us, do we really think we can make our status better by doing good works? We can go above and beyond what Jesus did. That's what he's saying is, this is so stupid to think this way, and yet he says, you're all thinking like this, so I must, and, and this is just straight up sarcasm, I must think that somebody has cast a spell on your brains. Because that's not how this works. It says in verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, notice the outside uh, place of that, and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Remember John and Peter when they went to the temple, and the man who was begging outside the temple, who was lame, you know, uh, asking for alms and stuff, and then Peter goes, you know, silver and gold have I none, uh, but such as I have give I you in the name of Jesus Christ, I say, rise up and walk. And everyone's astonished. And what does Peter say? Don't, don't look at us as if somehow our own piety, our own good works brought this about. This is the Spirit of Christ who does these things. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and work, works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And he brings it all the way back to the Gospel in Genesis, where he says, just as Abraham believed God, which is faith itself, and it was counted to him as righteousness, how does this work? Know then that it is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. Now, this, this is sticking it right to the Judaizers who are saying to these Gentile Christians, in order to be true descendants of Abraham, you have to become Jewish. And what Peter is saying is, you have the spirit already. You believe just like Abraham you're already true sons of his. They're not. Those who aren't Christians that are just Jews, that's, that's not what true Judaism is. And he says, this isn't a new teaching. Verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, there's that important word, the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. Again, he, he establishes all of this. Every claim that the Judaizers had uh, towards, uh, we, need, we need Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be right with God. It, Paul will pull this out and say, look, the reality is Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Why do you think you're any different? 
verse 10. And stop me at any point if you want to stop, but this is an unbroken thought all the way through that I'm trying to get to us. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's a very important verse, by the way. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. In other words, as James writes in his book, to do all the works of the law and fail at one point, you become guilty of it all. You're a lawbreaker. There's no hope in us. Because even if we did 99% of all the laws, 99% of the day long, not enough. Because the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. This is how James answers this issue on the Jewish side. On the Gentile side, what, what Paul is just writing is saying, look, if you rely on works of the law, even for your own Christian life, you are just going to find yourself cursed on this. You're going to find yourself despondent because you can't do it. There's nothing in you that brings about this life outside of the Spirit of God. He says in verse 11, it's evident. This is a normal way to read even the way the scriptures are written. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and he quotes it, the righteous shall live by faith. If, if you're not familiar, that comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, one of the greatest verses of the Old Testament uh, in one of the greatest books of the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. Um, it is also the capstone argument to the book of Romans. Uh, it's what starts off his entire uh, presentation. The just shall live by faith. It's not just that they will be saved by faith. It is that we live by reliance on God. In every point, at all point, to bring about the new life of the Christian, to bring about the new fruits of the Spirit, to bring about joy, to bring about peace that we don't understand. It, it has us interact in God's creative world in a completely new way. As he's already said, it's not I who live, it's Christ. He says in verse 12, he says, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who uh, does them shall live by them. Right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's a little bit packed, and this is one of the reasons why I'm very grateful we have the book of Romans as well, because he spends almost an entire chapter unpacking that concept. But in a sense, what he is doing is he's saying, if you want to depend on the law, it's just going to become a curse for you. Sure, the law says, do these things and you will live. This is, by the way, Romans chapter 7, if you want to see the expanded version. He says, the law tells us, do these things and you will live. And that's true. There's nothing wrong in the law. The problem is when we try to live in accordance with the law, all we see is our sin. It's just everywhere. It's not the law that's bad, it's me. And so he shows the role of the law wasn't to justify us before God. It was never for that. It was to show us who we are and to show us who God is by contrast, so that we come to him for mercy. Not so that we come to him and say, look at all these great things I did. That's why salvation has always been by faith. And he says, not only that, this is how we live. This is how the new life works. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Christ took the curse of the law upon himself. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, verse 13. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The fact that Christ died and became a curse takes away the law's sting. The power of the law, 1 Corinthians 15 says, is sin and the power of sin is death. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus who's removed that and taken from that and instead set our feet on the rock. He goes into this whole discussion of the law and the promise and the connection to being sons and heirs. Cool stuff for the end of chapter 3, but we're going to uh, pass over that. And uh, we're actually, uh, it's, it's a great discussion. It's worth reading as homework, but we're going to go right up to chapter 5. Uh, because the end of chapter 3 and the, uh, all of chapter 4 really focus on this concept of Ishmael and Isaac and the fact that um, one was born uh, through the attempts of the flesh. That would be Ishmael. Let's solve this issue of God going to bring about our descendants in our own way. And so Abraham goes and takes Hagar. And what Paul is saying is that's the equivalent of our working in the flesh. You can't bring about the promise of God by just trying really hard. 
Isaac was born according to promise. Completely miraculous. Right? How many of you, you're, you're not even 90 here, right? Nobody is, right? As far as I know. Um, having a child at 90 is laughable. And that's what Sarah did. She laughed as soon as she heard it. She was like, that's absolutely insane. I was barren when I could have kids, and it's been decades since that was an option. Or even a, even a theoretical option. And so God says, why would you laugh? Is anything too hard for God? Really? Really? That, that's your solution after all this? That this is too hard for God? Fine. And they go, oh, yeah, we've got to figure it out our own way. And that's led to a great deal of suffering and frustration. Ishmael was not the way. Isaac was the way. Why? Because he was the child born according to promise, not according to the flesh. And so, great discussion in there, worthy of your homework if you want to. But for class, let's stay in Galatians chapter 5. The very last verse of chapter 4 will be our run-up to it. So, brothers, this is kind of his culmination of all that. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We are children of promise, the work of God. Is anything too impossible to God? No. That's the application to the church. Is it impossible for God to save the Gentiles without circumcision? No. Because he's saving them according to promise, not according to the flesh. And he circumcises their hearts and minds. In Christ. And now he's about to explain how that works. Verse 1, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't try to live the Christian life in your own steam. It won't work. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have attempted that at various points. Let me, let me try to uh, raise my kids a certain way, and then it will turn out that way. And we'll actually turn uh, general statements in the scripture to mean that. Raise up a child in the way you will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. That's a general principle. It's not how it works uh, all the time. And the reality is, even if it was, do we actually think that we can do that perfectly? The only perfect parents are those who don't have children. And so when we, when we look at this, the same thing. The only perfect Christians are those who haven't lived the Christian life. Those who haven't seen it yet and realize that if it were up to me to maintain my salvation, I'd lose it before the day's over. Right? Here's where Paul will get, uh, in, in modern terms, very mean. Look. He says... <laughs> Pay attention to me. I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is now obligated to keep the whole law. If you think any of this applies to you, this is the aspect of the law. You can't pick and choose. You can't go, oh, I followed 99% of the law and I'm great. Nope, you fail in one point, you're guilty of it all. That's what James says. Same, same time frame. Paul here is saying the other side of it. If you take one point of it and say, from that law, I can claim that I have achieved a certain amount and Christ can just fill out what I'm missing. Paul says, nope. Christ is either all your righteousness or none of it. Which do you take? He says, if you're going to take circumcision, you're obligated now to keep the whole law. Good luck. He says, and if you're going to do that now fully warned, verse 4, you are now severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, fallen away from grace. This is not someone losing their salvation. He says this is actually demonstrating that you don't know what the life of Christ actually is. What you have heard from it, the grace of Christ, and then to see your own goodness in light of that, is to demonstrate you don't even know Christ at all or his spirit. That's tough language. For through the Spirit, he says, by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We don't seek to establish it in this life. We don't make God's righteousness reality here in our own steam and on our own power. It doesn't work like that. We are not the life givers. The Spirit of God is. And what we see in our life, we maintain gratitude for what God is doing despite our sins. Isn't that the experience that we actually have as Christians? We, we grow up 
and we find out that there's aspects of our lives that are far more sinful than we ever saw years ago. And, and the mature Christian is one who grows more thankful for Christ despite who we are as the years go on. Because we realize that if it was up to us, we would have departed from the faith many, many years ago. That all of these things depend on Christ. He says, for in Christ Jesus, verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. And he says to them, now he gets very personal about this. He says to all these churches in Galatia, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Basically, this opinion doesn't come from the scriptures. It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from the spirit. He says, don't you know, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It doesn't take much self-righteousness to undo what God is doing. It doesn't take much of looking at the self and glorifying the self to completely obscure and eclipse who God is. It just takes a bit of selfishness. It just takes a bit of confidence in the flesh. What does he say instead? Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now here he's going to get... uh, I don't know the right word for it. I'll just read it. And I will... Here's the thing. I'll actually include what it actually says rather than the very uh, sanitized version that we have in our scriptures. Um... Because he's going to talk about circumcision, which is just the removal of the foreskin uh, um, for, for young males, right? He says, verse 11, but if I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, if, if, if I'm actually going to preach circumcision, then these people who are teaching all of this stuff, they wouldn't have anything bad to say about me. He says, you know what I wish for them? I wish for them who unsettle you would chop the whole thing off. It says, if circumcision is going to accomplish justification, make yourself a eunuch. Wouldn't you be, wouldn't everything be so much better? This is exactly what he's saying. It's the height of sarcasm because he's saying, while they're circumcising themselves, I kind of wish that they would just have the nice knife slip. The way we translate that, I wish that they would emasculate themselves. That's tough language because what he is saying here is not only do I, is he expressing that the reality is that if a little bit helps, then a lot should help a whole lot, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't we imagine that? And so what he's saying is like, you are called to freedom, brothers. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He's saying, I'm not telling you to go out and break the law everywhere, but you cannot look at the law as something that you can achieve. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, use it as an opportunity to love and serve one another. What a great thing. James, who many people, because they don't know what they're doing with the Bible, thinks that there's an argument between James and Paul regarding salvation. There's no argument at all. James says the exact same thing. He calls the law for the Christian a law of liberty. We actually approach the law now and we can say, I I'm not following the rule of God. I'm not following the moral standards of God because I'm fearful of death. No, it is a law of liberty for me now. I know that what the law says is good and where it talks about life, I now love that because I love the law of God. Why? Because I love the life that it brings. The righteousness Christ has brought is a done deal. The law is fulfilled. Now we get to follow the law as an already fulfilled thing. There's no condemnation for the failures of it. It becomes a law of liberty. You were going to say something? Yep. As Christians, we try to live um, the way God calls us. Correct. And it's not because we're afraid of death because of that. It's right. Because we we're pers- God that we want to serve him. And we're pursuing the life that it speaks of. Yes. And so we follow the law as something already fulfilled and done. We don't follow the law as I have to fulfill this, otherwise God is going to condemn me. 
You know, that's, that's the essence of, of the transition point between Romans 7 and 8, where he talks all about this failure of the law to bring about life in our bodies. Uh, and then he goes into chapter 8, and that great verse, chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because he has set us free from, the, uh, from this, this curse of the law. And he goes on to this whole chapter in Romans 8, talking about the life that the Spirit works in us, that actually brings about better works of the law than anything we could have set our minds on. In other words, and this is exactly what he's going to say here, the works of the flesh, the works of trying really hard, you know, if we just set in our minds, I'm going to, I'm going to make up my mind to do good works, and that's it, and that's the depth of our consideration of it, we will fail much harder. You know, he's going to argue this. He, he says the same thing in Romans 7 where he's like, you know, I wouldn't have ever even known what it was to, to, um, to covet unless the law said don't covet. And he says, so I go into it, and this is Romans 7, just quoting here, where he says, but the law says don't covet. And then I set my mind to that. And what happens is it breeds covetousness of all types. He said, the law comes in, sin revived, and I died. That's exactly how he puts it. He's like, it promises life, but it proves to be death to me. Not because the law is bad. The law is not bad. I am. And to, res- to rely on myself to do these things is just to welcome death. Every time I hear the teaching of the law, what's going to happen if I'm relying on myself is just more and more and more sin. I'm going to find more ways that the sin that's deep within my heart is going to do all of these things. And so what, what he is expressing here is, this is not go out and just try to do the law really hard. This is rely on Christ and rely on the Spirit. He brings it about. Have you ever seen something in your life crop up that you did not design? A virtue that comes into your life that you did not work on, but all of a sudden it's there. This is what he is saying about, and he's working up to the fruit of the Spirit. He says, the fruit of the flesh, trying really hard, doing everything ourselves, is self-evident. Sexual immorality is disobedience to parents, all this kind of stuff, proves that we are trying to pursue this life on our own ability. But the fruit of the Spirit is completely different. So he says in the very next passage, verse 16, But I say to you, Oh, wait, sorry. We need verse 14 first. We stopped at 13. Is it, you know, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, use the fulfilled law as an opportunity to love one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in a single word. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. And so now he's going to take the whole law and go back to the attitude in order to fulfill the law is absent from the sinful human. Which is why doing works of the law doesn't accomplish anything. He says, but as Christians, the spirit of the law now lives within us to bring about the right attitude in the pursuit of the law. To love one another. It is the second greatest commandment. The first, just like it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, but, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. The lack of fellowship, the discord among brothers, it's a horrible thing. It's one of those things that actually demonstrates either one or both parties are not following the Lord. It's rough language. What does he say, verse 16 then? But I say. So here's where we get to the positive part about all of this. Throw away all that self-confidence in the law. What is it that Christians should be focused on? And this is, this is why I absolutely love coming to the book of Galatians and I spent 15 more minutes on this. This is great. But I say to you, Walk by the Spirit, and you, capital S, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's his culminating thought. What these Judaizers are hoping that through circumcision will bring about into your life obedience to the law, he says, it's just going to fail. It's just going to bring death and discord. It won't work. Why? Verse 17, because the desires of the flesh are against capital S, the spirit, and the desires of the spirit, capital S, are against the flesh. In that equation, we are the flesh. That's our contribution. Good works in the flesh don't do anything. 
They don't accomplish life. Bad works in the flesh bring death. So do the attempts at good works because it all becomes bad. So that's what he's saying. The works of the flesh, they're against the spirit. If you want life, it has to be by the spirit. He says these are actually fully opposed to one another. It's not like in the flesh there's that which is like the spirit and then there's that which is unlike the spirit. He says, no, all the works of the flesh, all are opposed to the works of the spirit. Capital S. Say, how? He says, well, they're opposed to one another. End of verse 17. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Any of you ever recognize this in your Christian walk? You want to do good things, but then you find out that the flesh is quite weak. You want to not be angry about something. You want not to have a certain sin repeat itself, and yet you find failure over and over again. That's what he's talking about. The works of the flesh keep you from doing the things you want to do. In other words, in our spirit, as Christians, we desire to do all the works of the law. But there's this whole other rule that's present within us. This sinful nature that continues to drag us down. He says, how do we defeat that? The answer is, we can't. It is the Spirit who does this. Watch it. But, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under the law. The law holds no power to those who are in Christ. Not to destroy us and not to perfect us. Everything is wrapped up in Christ who already fulfilled the law and all righteousness has been given to us. Therefore, we pursue these things not after the power of the flesh, but by dependence on the Spirit. He says, you want to try to do the law circumcision and everything else by your own power? The works of the flesh will show up in your life. He says they're evident. (laughs) You don't even need me to define them all, he says. The works of the flesh are evident. Verse 19, sexual immorality. Look how broad these terms are. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. All that kind of stuff. He doesn't even define a whole list. He just goes, you see this broad category of human sinfulness? That's what we're capable of. And if you try to pursue the law in your own power, that's where you will end up. No matter how hard you try. But... And I think the most important teaching of the Holy Spirit to the Christian life in all of Scripture is here in just a handful of verses. But the outcome, the fruit of the presence of the Spirit, capital S, is this list. It is highly specific. It is focused on virtue, not action. It is focused on attitude, not on action. It is focused on approach and how we look at life and other people. The outcome, the fruit of the Spirit, the proof that the Spirit is dwelling within us is not a list of good works. Notice how different this is. Everything he just said was a list of bad works. Everything he's about to say here is not about works at all. Because the works will take care of themselves. It's about a complete change in the heart's attitude and approach to this life. The fruit of the Spirit. If you ever memorize any list in Scripture, this should be the one. Love. Agape. Straight up, for those who are also in the Spirit, for those who are also in Christ, I will set aside anything. I will sacrifice anything including my own comfort for their good because Christ loves them. And even if I don't physically or ethnically or nationally get along with them, that is relevant. They're Jewish, they're Gentile, they're Samaritan, doesn't matter. I will seek their benefit because Christ has loved them and so I love them. We dedicate ourselves to an encouragement of one another, joy. Look at this. This is not an action. This is an attitude of the heart. Resting in Christ's finished work, we do not fear 
serving the Lord. The book of Romans puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace with God. Therefore, we walk in the way that we do. And that is the next one, peace. A peace that the scriptures say is a unique type of peace. Not the peace that the world gives. Jesus even addressed it exactly like this. It's not the same kind of peace. Because the peace that the world gives is here one day and gone the next. Every time we come to a long pattern of history where there's not war, there's always people that crop up and say, hey, we're, we're going into a, a, a phase where we are beyond war. War doesn't make financial sense anymore. Or war, we're beyond all wars. You know, when they uh, started that kind of stuff in the modern world, it was about 1910. So much progress in the world that we're, we're now past war. Anyone remember what happened in 1914? Remember what they called it during the war? The Great War, it had another name. The War That Ends All Wars. How'd that work out? Something happened in 1939, I don't remember exactly what it was. There was a little skirmish somewhere. Yeah, World War II. Uh, which proved that World War I was only a practice run, a skirmish, uh, compared to World War II. World War II was unreal. Then the Korean War, the Vietnam War, multiple other wars, everything. Sudan, civil wars, Darfur. I mean, how many other wars do we need? Bosnia, uh, Kosovo. I mean, Israel and, and the Gaza Strip are constant state of war. Like, do we have massive things going on? Well, right now, I don't know, Russia, Ukraine, all of that's going on. The reality is, even if you live in a time of peace, that peace is fleeting. The same thing goes for the Christian life, or excuse me, the same thing goes for a, a non-Christian life that someone who thinks they're a Christian. If you have the type of peace that comes and goes... It's a bad thing. It doesn't mean your circumstances don't change. No, that there is an underlying peace. Even if my circumcisions, or if my circumstances, even if my circumstances seek to undo me, there is a baseline of peace that God has brought into my life. I am confident that he will work and is working his purposes regardless of what my circumstances look like. How can we think anything else? Is God trying to figure out the future like we are? No. Even if you don't hold that God brings about all things that come to pass, which he does, even if you don't hold to that, you've got to at least admit that God allowed it. Which means you're here in these circumstances at his direction. We have to rest in that. We can't look at our circumstances and say, oh, our circumstances are simply a result of what we've done. That's not true. History is a result of what God has done. And yeah, are there failures? Sure, but there's grace too. And sometimes things come because they're things we caused, and sometimes they come because that's the way that living in a fallen world works. Sometimes we lose people. Sometimes we lose relationships. That is not something to say that God has failed. No, instead... We depend on this, and at peace doesn't even make sense to us at times. Scriptures also call it a peace that passes all understanding. It's not something that always makes sense to us, but there is, there is an underflowing, there's an undercurrent river of resting in God that no matter what comes our way, God is with us. James will write just like this. It's, in fact, it's how he opens his book. And that's why I love the parallels between James and Galatians. That could actually be a class on its own. Because he introduces it directly. He doesn't wait till chapter 5 to include this. He just goes up and says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you pass through various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The very next thing in this list It brings patience. And patience, when it has its full work, James says, makes us complete. What is it about patience? And any Christian that's lived the Christian life for any amount of time knows that patience must be a part of it. Because the vast majority of the promises that we are given in Christ are for a future that we haven't seen yet. We hear tell of this 
new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And when we look at this, we simply see the suffering around us and the suffering in our own lives. And we go, how long, O Lord? And we will be just like those martyrs under the altar in Revelation chapter 5. How long, O Lord, will you let injustices reign? How long will your patience be with this sinful world, bringing about so much of the suffering of your saints? And the answer of the Lord rings in our ears, just a little longer, just a little longer, a little longer. Endure to the end. And it works in us patience. But that patience doesn't come without suffering. It's earned. It's not earned in the way that we dig down into ourselves and find something. No. It is that the Spirit of God walks with us through times of grave difficulty and brings about patience for a new day. And that has specific effects in our life. The first four really have to do with our approach towards God and his world. And then the next fruits deal with our approach towards people. By the way, kind of a parallel to the Ten Commandments, by the way. First one in that list, kindness. Not niceness. I don't trust nice Christians. Nice Christians are those who smile at you and stab you in the back. Kindness. Deep-seated, it's very connected to love. Deep-seated devotion to one another. I will do for you. Not just doing nice things. I will do for you things that cost me. I will do for you things that are good for you. Kind-hearted. And seeking the benefit of one another. Nice people are those who do good things so that they can receive. And Jesus says, nah, that's not how this works. That's not what kindness is. Goodness, a general statement of approach to all things. I will pursue what is good in every situation. Now, good is a very dicey term because in our language, we turn it as things that we deem good. No, real good. God's good. And we seek that that will come about. Romans talks about this as well. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, of those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean if your stocks go down and you're a Christian, that means your stocks are going up next month. Anyone ever suffered the loss of money, career, security, and things in this world? Everyone has. It's not a promise that things will work out here. If you read the rest of the book of Romans, you will see that the good that works as a result of all of these bad and good circumstances, the good is our ultimate salvation. Everything in our life leads to that. And God ensures that it works to that good. And so our entire approach to life is focused on that promise of God that all things are in accordance with his purposes. And he is good. And so if he passes us through times that we see are unfair or are brutal, we can rest in God's purposes. That this did not befall us by accident. But that God is walking with us through it all. And doesn't that breed in us the very last one in verse 22? Faith. That's just the simple word pistis. Most of our Bibles translate it faithfulness, but I will retranslate that. It is simple faith. This is a dependence on God in all circumstances, at all times, in all ways, that even if the worst things befall my path, God will not leave me to my own devices. He will not abandon me any more than he abandoned Christ to the grave. And I will follow him wherever he takes me. That is not something we dig down into our soul and find. That is something God gives us. And wouldn't you know the last two are born out of that? How do we treat others when they fail us? Gentle. And self-control. You say, but they've wronged me. You've wronged God. And you've wronged people time without number. Be gentle. Don't be nice. Be harmless as doves, but you best be wise as serpents. 
but be gentle. Why does he say this? Because at the center of who we are, we realize that the Spirit of God is making us more like Christ. More like Christ every day. And Christ was not digging down into the humanity that he is to try to accomplish the law. He is God himself. To depend on the self is to say that I'm equivalent to God in some way. We're not. We are servants. And Christ even said to his disciples, when you, even you, when you have done all that is required of you, when you have gone through your whole life and you approach your own mortality, say, we are servants still. We have only done what is our duty. We do not approach our grave by saying, I've done all the stuff right. God ought to raise me from the dead. No. The Spirit of God is in our life constantly showing us that if it was up to us, I wouldn't love anyone but myself. And the joy that I would have would flee from me at any given moment. The peace I would have would be affected by every circumstance and be ripped away from me in any circumstance. The patience that I have would be pushed to the limit in a moment, fits of anger, fits of wrath. The kindness that I have would be niceness, putting on a face while I destroy people. The goodness that I have would be non-existence, and I would never rely on God in any faith whatsoever. I don't need it. I have myself. You see the attitude. And so what he says is, that will lead to us not being gentle with one another. It will only lead to strife and a lack of self-control. And he finishes off this capstone of the fruit of the Spirit by saying, against such things, there is no law. He says, this doesn't go against the law. This is what the law was aiming at. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Throw it all away and depend on the Spirit instead. He says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Don't become lazy. This is not some call to become lazy Christians or to become sinful Christians. No, no, no. He says, don't become conceited. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another. And then he applies one of these to a very specific instance. He says, you want to see how one of these fruits of the Spirit will actually work in the real world? He says, look at it. Verse 1, chapter 6. He just takes gentleness and then shows it what it looks like. If anyone is caught in any transa- uh, transgression, he says, he says, okay, so let's look at a Christian. A Christian in your fellowship that is caught up in some transgression. That is, that is pursuing something that's going to destroy them and bring about death. And you are to encourage them towards life. How do you do that? Do you do it by being angry with them? Do you do it with them by punishing them? How do you bring about repentance in another Christian's heart? You who are spiritual, you who do have the Spirit, you who are Christians, who claim some level of maturity in Christ, restore that one in a spirit of gentleness. Otherwise, you too will be caught up in the same sins. Don't have any confidence in yourself. Push them on to Christ. The only way that this works is if the Spirit of God is working in our midst. The real concern that people have, they say, well, you know, this is why every false religion in the world just upholds rules. We just talked about Mormonism before class started. Mormonism is the most legalistic religion on earth. Through obedience to law, God became God. And we too, as humans, will one day become God through obedience to law. Everything, every false religion is based on following rules, either to achieve nirvana, either to achieve something, even in uh, Islam, is to achieve a, a better chance at having the mercy of God. Christianity has nothing to do with this. It doesn't look at man and say, dig down deep and find the answer to life. What it says is, look to Christ, who is himself the life, and don't look to yourself at all. You say, well, what if we tell people that? They're just going to go out and sin all they want. They will show who they are. And Christian, 
to focus on Christ will show who you are. This is the difference between possessing the Spirit and not possessing the Spirit. This is the difference between having the Spirit of God indwell our hearts and simply devoting ourselves to self. If anyone, he says in verse 3, thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't look to yourself for the answer. Let us boast in the Lord and only in the Lord. This is the teaching that Paul gives to the Galatian believers. Don't listen to those who will say, doing works of the law is going to perfect you. You already have that in Christ. You already have the Spirit. Don't be stupid. Don't pursue something else. Don't be have a vex cast over your brain and lack ability to think. He said, no. Devote yourself to these things. It is the Spirit who brings this. The flesh is no help at all. Questions, comments before we close out class this morning. I hope that's encouraging. It's one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. Um, Because it takes from us self-centeredness. And he just portrays self-centeredness in front of you, kills it, says, keep stabbing it. says, see how there's no life in it. No protection. Even if you're able to live a legalistic life for a year or two or five or ten years, it will crumble. I've watched it happen so many times, it saddens me. But I have also watched the grace of God restore lives of people that didn't deserve it. You ever watch God save somebody you don't like? It's a very humbling experience. You ever watch God not save somebody you do like? It's equally humbling. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't bring it about. That life is not owed to you and your prayers and your fervor and your piety any more than the miracles of Peter and John falling on the man in the temple. I can't bring about the life of God. Only God does this. Only God does this. Let's leave off there, the Holy Spirit in Galatians.